Father, I do pray for those who come here this morning whose hearts are heavy and who know and feel that uh, weeping is very near because of surprising and astonishing, painful things that happen in our lives. Lord, I, I pray for them. I pray that you would bind them up, draw near to them. Help them to find rest and hope in the powerful death and resurrection of our King Jesus. I pray for those who may be here and who dread sanctity of human life Sunday, maybe because they've been so touched by it personally in their lives, they've had an abortion, they've paid for someone to have an abortion, and uh, this, this Sunday always is a kind of dreadful reminder of something they wish they never had a part of. Lord, I pray that somehow in the midst of this that they would know the love of Christ and the love of this body for them. And in the midst of speaking truths and moral clarity that there would be hope and not condemnation. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we want to raise up a standard of truth and a beacon of hope to people who are hurting and broken. And Lord, I pray that you would guide us to that from this text. So Lord, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Today is National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is usually scheduled for the Sunday that is closest to the anniversary of the infamous Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. This year, the anniversary of that decision happens to fall exactly on Sunday. So today is, in fact, that day, and it has been 44 years since January 22nd, 1973. And our country has not become less divided over this issue than it was 44 years ago. It is more divided over this issue. Since 1973, nearly 60 million unborn human beings have been killed legally in our country. Wrap your mind around the scale of that. Think about the Holocaust times 10. And the Roe v. Wade decision made it legal to kill those children at any stage of pregnancy up to and including the ninth month. That is what we mark today, and that is why I was struck yesterday by the juxtaposition of what we are observing today with what we saw Yesterday, in the hundreds of thousands of people, mainly women, who marched in our nation's capital and in other major cities around the country. And it was no accident that the organizers planned the march to occur on the heels of, of, of the inauguration. But it was surprising that 
that um, it was not what was billed as a women's march was actually a little more um, specific than that, as the organizers of the event did not welcome women who were not pro-abortion and specifically excluded women who were, um, one group at least, who were, who were pro-life. The reason for that is because the organizers of the demonstrations yesterday published a unity of principles that expressed what they were marching for, and they said this. They said, we do not accept any federal, state, or local rollbacks, cuts, or restrictions on our ability to access quality reproductive health care services, by which they mean abortion. This means open access to safe, legal, affordable abortion and birth control for all people, regardless of income, location, or education. But that's the unity of principles. And they said this. They said, we must have the power to control our bodies and be free from gender norms, expectations, and stereotypes. And it's right there that we see the real goal of the modern feminist movement in our nation today. Abortion rights are important to that modern feminist movement because of its larger aim to, quote, be free from gender norms, expectations, and stereotypes. That's right there in the unity of principles. And for women, that means to be free from the obligations of motherhood. If a man has the freedom to sleep with whom he wants, whenever he wants, without having to fear about the consequence of a pregnancy or a baby, then a woman should also have that same freedom. If a man's economic and professional advancement is free from the possible encumbrance of child-rearing and the appearance of a baby, then a woman's economic and professional advancement should be as well. And so that is why contraception and abortion are fundamental, non-negotiable values to the feminist movement. Women must be freed from the consequences of their own fertility. That's the idea. And the only way to ensure that is through abundant access to contraception and abundant access to abortion. Its core value is freedom from the restraints that other people may put on them on female economic and social empowerment. And if an unborn baby gets in the way of that freedom, the freedom wins out over the life of the baby. That's what the pro-choice movement in its radical feminist expressions, that's what it's all about. That's what it boils down to. It's an ugly business, but... It's not surprising to us when sinners act like sinners and think like sinners. That's not a surprise to us. Apart from grace, ain't none of us in here going to be doing much better or thinking much better about any of these things than the people marching yesterday. None of us. But it is stunning to us when we find that kind of thinking and reasoning making its way in and among the people of God. And I'm concerned that there may be some who may be succumbing to the stiff winds of error that are blowing against the church from the culture. I'm concerned that there may be some who may be, may be perhaps pro-life in principle, but who nevertheless agree 
with portions of the feminist uh, mandate, like expressed in the unity of principles that say we, they, that women must be free from all gender norms, expectations, and stereotypes. Here's the question. Is it possible to follow Christ and to pursue freedom from gender norms, expectations, and stereotypes? Now, the answer to that question is no, but let's stipulate up front that we all know that there are such things in the world as fallen and sinful gender norms, expectations, and stereotypes. We know that that's true. Some people's idea of what it means to be created as as male and female are wrong and fallen and, and unbiblical. We know that. But that's a far cry from saying that all gender norms and expectations are fallen especially since we know that the Bible has norms and expectations that fall to us based precisely on our maleness and femaleness. And if you refuse what Christ calls us to be and to do as male and female, if you refuse that, you can't follow Christ. And so this is why, for the sake of the unborn and for the sake of following Christ faithfully, We have to train our minds and to think and believe what the scripture teaches us about these things, even when the culture is exerting all of its strength to overturn what the Bible teaches. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I could not have planned today. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is a set event. I did not plan that we would just happen to be in Titus chapter 2 on on this day, but here we are on this day in this text that commands mothers to love their children. So in Titus chapter 2, at the end of chapter 1, you will remember, right at the end of chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul is explaining to Titus what a false teacher looks like. He says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, which means they have a profession of faith, but not the reality of faith. And their inauthentic faith is proven by the way that they teach and live their lives. There is an external veneer of religion and devotion, but their deeds make their disobedience plain. And so at the end of chapter 1, after warning Titus what the false teachers are like, Paul is now going to explain to Titus what a faithful pastor will look like. And a faithful pastor is one who teaches and lives what is agreeable or in accordance to sound doctrine. And so Paul gives us in these 10 verses a really practical word about what faithfulness to Christ looks like for different people in different life situations within the church. And so we're going to make our way through the first three of these today It will take us two messages to get to each one of these groups of people. But we're going to focus on his word to the old men, his word to the old women, and his word to the young women of the congregation. So a word to the old men, a word to the old women, and a word to the young women of the congregation about what it means to live godly in accordance with sound doctrine. So first of all, a word to the old men. Everybody look at verse 1. Paul says this to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, notice the immediate contrast that Paul requires of Titus. In chapter 
1, in verses 10 through 11, Paul says that the false teachers are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They must be silenced, Paul says. In contrast, Paul says to Titus, but you, in chapter 2 and verse 1, which immediately tips us off that Paul is trying to tell Titus, don't be like those false teachers. This is what they're like, but you are supposed to be this way, he says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You might even translate this, what accords with healthy doctrine. I say that because the word literally does refer to that which is healthy versus that which is sick. Except Paul is using the term here figuratively, in this case, to refer not in terms of uh, physical health, but doctrine that is healthy. The doctrine is healthy, not in terms of being free from literal sickness, but in terms of being free from error. So doctrine is the life, this sound, healthy doctrine is the lifeblood of Christian faith. It's the life-giving, authoritative deposit of truth. It's the true teaching of Christianity. That's what he means when he says sound doctrine. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't just say teach sound doctrine. That's not what he says, is it? He says teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so you know, you know what Paul's doing here? I think Paul has in mind the nitty-gritty work of pastoral ministry. A pastor, when he's exhorting the con congregation, has a twofold responsibility in handling the truth of God's word. He has to know what God's revelation is, what God has revealed to us. For us, that comes to us in the strict scripture. He has to know what it is. And he has to, he's got to show his congregation how it applies to their lives. He has to know what the Bible says, for example, about marriage and then he's got to apply that to the marriages that are in the church. He's got to speak sound doctrine, and he's got to speak what accords with sound doctrine. And if you know sound doctrine, but you can't really tell people and exhort people how to live their lives in accord with sound doctrine, you're not going to be a very good pastor. You think of this from, from, the, from the congregation's perspective, same thing. If sound doctrine, if you know sound doctrine, but can't live out what accords with sound doctrine, you're no better than the false teachers who Paul says profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. And so we don't want to have any gap between what we profess to believe and then what we live out in our lives to the degree that there is a gap between sound doctrine and what accords with it in our lives there's unfaithfulness to Christ. And so as pastors, we exhort you to live in a way that is fitting with sound doctrine. As church members, we all, all of us, have to live in a way that is fitting with sound doctrine or we prove ourselves to be false believers who don't really know God. So stakes are pretty high here to close the gap between what we say we believe and what we do. And so Paul's going to unpack practically what it means for different groups in the church to live in accordance with sound doctrine. That's what the rest of this passage is about. And he starts with the older men of the congregation. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men. 
You listen. He's telling you what is supposed to characterize your life. And the first thing is sober-mindedness, which translates a term that means moderate in the drinking of alcoholic beverage. But I think what he means here is a kind of figurative extension of that to be, to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness, from excess, from passion, from rashness and confusion. It's a call to be restrained in conduct, self-controlled, level-headed. That's what he's calling for here. It's what characterizes a person who is sober-minded, dignified, is a word that means worthy of respect, honor, noble, serious. The dignified person is so self-possessed and in control of his temper and his fears that he elicits admiration from those who know him. That's what it means to be dignified. It's like a conspicuous display of character. Self-controlled indicates someone who is thoughtful, uh, in the first century, this was not an uncommon word um, that is translated as self-controlled. It was a word that Aristotle used in his, his book on ethics. And it indicates an avoidance of extremes and careful consideration for responsible action. For Aristotle, self-control, the self-controlled person is intent on, what we, on the what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. An older man should be someone in the congregation who can model what needs to be done, who knows it and can help other people to see it and lead them to it. The word uh, he uses here for sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Sound, again, means to be healthy or free from sickness. And the extension of that here is it means to be correct and free from error. So sound in faith and love and endurance means that older men have to believe in the right way, to love in the right way, and to endure in the right way. So men, don't miss what Paul is saying to you right here. Paul is describing older men who don't panic in the face of a challenge. That's what he's saying. He's describing men who don't get angry when they are provoked. He's describing men who don't fear in the face of a threat. The guy he's describing is as solid as an oak. He's the kind of guy that you look to when something is broke and nobody knows how to fix it. He's the kind of guy who is sought out for his wisdom and ability to speak truth into very difficult situations. When relationships are disintegrating, everyone looks to this guy to bring it back together. He's exemplary in his faith, in his love for his wife and his kids, and for his church and for his neighbor. And he faces trials with perseverance and with courage. He's the guy you want your son to grow up and be like. He's the guy you hoped that you'd always grow up to be. Older men, this is so important. The church desperately needs her older men to be like this. In an age when manhood is failing all around us and men are collapsing to their lusts and to every wind of doctrine that is blowing against them. 
The church desperately needs oaks of righteousness growing up in the midst. We need an army of laymen who believe well and who love well and who suffer well. That's what we need you to be for us. And we need you to be that because you are supposed to be the pace setters for the rest of the church. I don't think it's an accident that Paul begins this list by addressing the older men in the church. He begins with you because he intends for you to be leading out in these things in the church and in your homes. That's why he does it. You know, there's a proverb that says, Proverbs uh, chapter 20 and verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. This verse means that young men are not noted for their great and profound wisdom into life. The main contribution of young men is their ability to serve others with their physical strength and vigor. That means that young men ought to be trying to outserve one another in ways that involve their physical ability as God gives it to you. And when someone needs help moving, the young men show up. When there's a work day at the church, the young men show up with their able-bodied eagerness. But as the years accumulate in a man's life, strength diminishes. And as strength diminishes, guess what begins to accumulate? Experience and wisdom. And gray hair, the splendor of an old man is their gray hair. Gray hair represents the accumulation of wisdom and sensibleness about life and about what needs to be done. And this is an old man's splendor and contribution to us and to our neighbors. And it's supposed to be his contribution to this body. So older men, we need you and we need you to live your life in such a way that evokes admiration and respect. We don't need you to be a great orator. We don't need you to write books on theology. We got enough of that around here. Um, we don't need that. We just need you to be godly. That's all we need. We need you to be able to pour yourself out to your family and to others who need your steadiness and your wisdom. Isn't that a great aspiration for manhood? We need that, older men. We need you to be that. So there's this word to the old men, but look at verse 3. It's a word to the older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good. Notice Paul says the word likewise, which means, I think he means that these older women are to be godly exemplars in the congregation, just like the older men are supposed to be. And Paul specifies for these women some very specific attributes. He says, first of all, they're, to, they're supposed to be reverent in behavior. It's really interesting that Paul... Um, uses this word that's not really used anywhere else in Scripture, but it's a word that puts holiness on the front of a word that means what is fitting. Older women are supposed to be the women who do the things that are fitting to holiness. Reverent in behavior, that's what that means. And then Paul zeroes in on two very specific besetting sins that are not in accord 
with holy behavior. He says, not slanderers. Reverent in behavior, but that means not slanderers. You know what slander means. To slander someone means to assassinate somebody's character with your words. And sometimes what can be a strength in women, which is a natural care and concern for people, can have a, an ugly backside, which is an overcare and concern, which devolves into busybodying about other people. The NASB translates the term as malicious gossips. And so the malevolent attempt to cut on people with your words is not in keeping with holiness. In fact, this term is one of the names that the Bible gives to the devil. Diabolos is the word here for slanderer. The devil is a slanderer. Slander is the devil's work, and it's completely at odds with holy behavior. But he also says they're not to be slanderers, but also not slaves to much wine. Don't miss the imagery there of slavery that he gives for the women. It's a warning of what much wine can do to a person. And, you know, and Paul may be thinking here of the fact that a lot of these women, if they're at home, they have constant access to the food and drink of the household. And so this kind of excess can be a real temptation. But he's saying that this, this kind of temptation can lead to bondage. And it undermines holiness when it does. And it prevents older women from assuming a, partic a particular duty that she is supposed to have in the congregation. Then that duty is the next phrase. If you're slandering and if you're enslaved to much wine, you can't do this next thing. They are to teach what is good. So the older women in the congregation have a responsibility and an obligation to teach. But they can't teach what they can't do. And verses 4 through 5 show exactly what they're supposed to teach and to whom they are to teach it. So she's got to be holy and faithful in her own behavior before she can communicate this to others. It turns out that an old woman's gray hair is a crown of splendor for her too, just like it is for the old man. And her steadiness and her wisdom is supposed to be a boon for the younger women of the congregation, a cup that they all can drink from to learn from. Do we have older women like this in our congregation? I think we do. Do we have younger women like this in our congregation aspiring for this? I hope we do. The world's point of view on the relationship between gray hair and wisdom is, is upside down right now. These are really basic things I think I'm communicating, but it's, it's kind of countercultural because the world absolutely idolizes youth. So much so that the order of the day is to suppress the appearance of age and to try and stay and look as young as you can for as long as you can because the essence of the good life is for those who are youthful and vigorous and beautiful. And the world right now caters to the tastes and opinions of the young because they are the most coveted consumer demographic. And so the world puts the old people on the shelf and the young people on the podium, but it really should be the other way around. And sometimes I fear we see this in churches. I just spoke to uh, some friends this week or last week that are at a church without a pastor, and the church has appointed a committee, a team of people to decide the direction of the church 
before they find the next pastor. And the team is composed almost entirely of young adults with no senior adults. That's backwards. If you're going to make a team that's composed exclusively of one demographic, you would want it to be filled with those wearing the gray-headed crown of splendor. But we often get this backwards. And if the world is acting one way towards the, our gray-haired crowns of splendor, we're supposed to be acting a different way. We see a glory in it that nobody else sees. So we can't be like that in the church. We want the whole body aspiring to the crown of splendor. To honor that, we want the whole church to aspire to the honor that is due to those who have learned to live well and faithfully and to do what God has called them to do. And that's a word that is to the old, but it's really a word that's to all of us. This is aspirational for all of us, that we would grow old this way. So he gives a word to the old men, a word to the old women, but then finally he gives a word to the young women. Look at verses 4 and 5. These older women are supposed to teach what is good. Why? Verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. So really, verse 4 focuses on who the older women are supposed to be teaching, the younger women. And it focuses on what the older women are supposed to be teaching the younger women. Obviously, if they're supposed to be teaching this to the younger women, it's everything in this list about the younger women is what these older women are supposed to already be. So this is supposed to, these characteristics of the younger women, what they're called to, is what the older women are supposed to already be. And the first thing these younger women are supposed to learn from the older ladies is how to love well. Look at the, the verse. It says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And it, it, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's literally, they're supposed to train them to be, and it's one word for each of these, husband lovers and children lovers. Husband lovers and children lovers. Now here's the question. Why would the younger women need to be taught that? Anybody who's been married for any length of time or anybody who's had kids already really knows the answer to this question. The, the reason that people need to be taught this is because love within a household is often difficult and beset by obstacles. Sometimes those obstacles are in our own hardened hearts. Sometimes those obstacles are due to the faults of the ones that we're called to love. And most of the time, it's both. And if you don't believe me, Ask my wife. She's not here this morning. Um, but you can ask my wife. I know it may be hard for you to believe, but I'm not always as lovable and irresistible as I come across here, I'm sure, from the pulpit. And those little kids that are running around our household, they're not always running around with little halos on saying, Mother, how may we bless you today? I'm cranky in the morning. I don't like to talk. That makes for great marital relationships, okay? Uh, 
the kids have their own interests and conflicts and are often a handful. And so, so much of what a wife and a mom is called to do is thankless and sacrificial. That's what they face on a day-to-day basis. And often the people who she's closest to don't give her the affirmation and encouragement that she needs. And so it can be hard to love, right? There are obstacles to love in our own hearts and in, in, in the people that we're called to love. And as a wife and a mom, ladies, you have to learn forbearance and forgiveness. I mean, we've, us husbands, kids, we've got our own things we've got to work on, but you've got to work on forbearance and forgiveness. You've got to learn how to love when loving is hard. And the older women of the congregation are supposed to be there for you to show you the ropes on how to do this over the long haul, to show you how to do it and to persevere and how to engage and communicate and to be patient with cranky husbands. And so that's what's supposed to be happening in the congregation is a teaching of the, old, the older generation, teaching the older, younger generation how to love well to the people that are closest to them. But he also says this in verse 5. These younger women are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, obviously, so much of of these characteristics are focused on those young women who are, are married. This, this verse mainly is describing the duties that are specifically related to the covenant of marriage. That word self-controlled is the same term that is the same word that was used of the men. And actually the word that's translated self-control is the only word that's used of every single person in the list, all the family members in, in the list. And it, it indicates an avoidance of extremes, as I said before, careful consideration for responsible action. So it applies to everybody that, are, that is in the household. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. But the rest of these characteristics relate uniquely to this woman's role in her marriage. Pure refers to moral uprightness. And I think in connection to the women, it often bears the idea of chastity. And of course, sexual faithfulness means chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. No sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. Working at home is a term that literally means houseworker. And what it means is that the wife has a particular assignment to care for and manage the home. Whatever else she does, she cannot shirk her primary duty to care for the home and those who live in it. Now, the immediate question that people have is, well, does this mean that a wife can never leave the house or that she can never work outside of the home? I don't Actually, I don't think that it means that. If you take a look at Proverbs chapter 31, here you see a woman who considers a field and buys it and brings in an income for her her family. There are a wide range of activities that this virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 does, but no matter what she does, she never leaves off of her duty to love her husband and her children and to care for the home, which is her primary duty. So she's supposed to be a worker at home, kind, it says, probably a specific application to her relationships in the home. It calls on her to have a generous and a sympathetic and warm-hearted nature. That's what it's, it's calling for here. 
And I think God has fitted women in a specific way for this. We're all called to be kind, but women have a special nurturing sense, I think, that God has implanted in them. And that's why he says this and specifies this here. And then the next phrase, maybe the most controversial one, and submissive to their own husbands, which we might translate as being subject to their own husbands. Now, I know that that word submission or being subject is often a red flag word. It scares people. It makes people think of coercion or abuse. Uh, So let me just stipulate up front. This word does not mean that women are supposed to submit to coercion or abuse. Uh, It's not what it means. Um, What does it mean then? The term means to recognize and follow the leadership and direction of a recognized authority. And of course, in the home, Paul teaches elsewhere that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 5. And so in this case, the recognized authority is the husband. Wives aren't supposed to submit, are, are not supposed to submit to all men, but to one man, to one man, her own husband, and to follow his leadership. But notice what Paul does not say here. Paul could have said, husbands, subject your wives to yourselves. That's not what he says. Paul might have spoken in such a way that called on husbands to compel or coerce submission from their wives. That would have been completely in keeping with the norms of first century patriarchal culture. That's not what Paul says. That's not how Paul talks. He addresses the wives and he says, be subject. Maybe the passive voice, maybe the middle voice, which would mean subject yourselves to your own husbands. What that means is is that wives are called on voluntarily to submit themselves to their husband's leadership. The responsibility falls to the wives to submit themselves, not to the husbands to make them submit. You hear what I'm saying here? Guys, if you ever find yourself trying to force your wife to follow your leadership, then you need to know there's a problem. Especially if it's a pattern over the course of your marriage. You need to be asking yourself, why isn't she following me? Now, the answer might be that she's in rebellion against God and, and, and his, uh, the role that he's called her to in your marriage. That's possible. If that's the case, you can pray for her. You can tenderly exhort her. But it's often the case that the reason she's not following is because you're being a crummy leader. But no matter what the reason is for her failure to follow your leadership, you don't ever coerce or manipulate submission. Ever. Obviously, you would never physically coerce your wife to do anything. But neither can you be verbally abusive or manipulative to get your way. That's not leadership. If you have to verbally and emotionally intimidate your wife into what you think her role should be, then the problem is not her, it's you. And you need to repent. So wives, what this does mean for you is that the onus is on you to submit to your husband. You're not to submit to every man, just to one man, your husband. And if you're married to a good man and if you choose not to submit, he's not going to wrestle you for it, okay? So this is coming down to whether or not you're going to do this. Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5, God calls you to submit to your husband as to the Lord. 
which means that you should view your submission to your husband as a part of your commitment to the Lord Jesus. The narrow road that leads to life for you in your marriage is a path that involves submission. All of this, Paul says in verse 5, is to show is so that the word of God may not be dishonored. In other words, this orderliness in the home is supposed to be demonstrating something to the world. That a husband can love his wife as Christ loves the church, and a wife can follow that leadership. And this is a mirror image of the way that Christ loves his bride, Ephesians 5 tells us. And when that order is upended, it's communicating something wrong about the nature of marriage, but more importantly, about the nature of the way Christ loves his church. Loves and leads his church. So there's a word to the old men, a word to the old women, and a word to the young women. But here's the question I want to ask you. Thinking back to the beginning of this sermon and what we talked about at the beginning. Is it possible to follow Christ and be free from gender norms, expectations, and all the rest? This text is filled with gender norms and expectations. Commands that are given to us based on whether or not we are male or female and our role in a marriage and even in a congregation. The Bible gives us very specific instructions about how we're supposed to live out our lives as male and female image bearers. To seek to be free from those kinds of norms would not be empowering to us, but would be an assault on God's revelation to us. It would undermine our witness. But it's what the world is trying to get you to be free from and to cast off. And since today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, let's focus in on that one particular gender-specific command that he gives to these women in the passage. Women are to love their children. Which is a command to be heeded by all the women in the congregation. I wish we didn't live in a day where we had to say this, but we have to say this. Love your children. Love them born and unborn. Only do to them what is in keeping with love. Don't be co-opted by ideologies which are telling you it would be best to harm your child. Don't do it. So there's a command for the women here, but there's a command for our church community as we bear witness to the larger community that we need to sustain a community that values motherhood. Mothers that are married, mothers who are unmarried. We want those mothers to love their children. And we want to enable them and support them in any way we can. Right? We want to make it so that they can love their children and not destroy their children. So we have an obligation to help. Listen, I've thrown a lot of stuff out here, and, and we're all falling short of this, right? We believe the Holy Spirit can empower us to do this. We do. And I just want you to know, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you're not a Christian, 
and you're feeling the weight of all of this on you and maybe the weight of very past bad decisions that you've made, you need to know that the Bible says that the Lord can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And he can take all the garbage and he can make it and he can make you new and can change you. And your falling short is not so great that he can't bring you up. And the reason is because of Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to this world to die for us and for our sin, to take the penalty that we deserve. He raised him up from the grave so that we could have eternal life. And you can have the grace of the gospel, the saving and transforming grace of the gospel, not by earning it, just, but just by believing in that message of Jesus' death and resurrection for you. That's the message. And the way that God changes you is a free gift that comes to you by believing that first. So if you haven't done that, you need to do that today. Father, I pray for those who are here that you would transform every single person in this room into the image of your own dear son, Jesus. I pray that you would free people from guilt and from regret and would give them the sunny hope of the resurrection that makes us look to the future with joy and expectation and helps us to be free from the dark things of our past. I pray that every single man, woman, and child would come into the sunlight of that realization that you love us so much that you sent your son for us. Father, cause that faith to spring up in these, your people and in those you're calling to yourself. Father, we pray for you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.